Welcome to Connecting Citizens to Science, a podcast from the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine about engaging communities in global health research. I'm Kim Ozano. And I'm B. Eggard. And throughout this series, we'll be talking to researchers from around the world, exploring how they connect with people to address a range of challenges in global health. Hello and welcome listeners to the Connecting Citizens to Science podcast. This month's series is all about climate change and health. In this week's episode, we have the privilege of hearing about citizen science approaches for tackling flooding in Ethiopia. Our guests are from the GCRF Global Water Security and Sustainable Development Hub, which is led by Newcastle University. Their work with citizen scientists aims to improve awareness and action on flooding risks and airborne hazards in Ethiopia. Flooding significantly affects the lives and livelihoods in many regions due to rapid urbanisation, climate change and associated increases in waterfall and operation of water supply reservoirs. Due to flooding, many farmers have shifted from rain-fed to irrigated agriculture. Still, flooding causes significant damage to irrigated crops, livestock and humans. Flooding also increases the risk of exposure to waterborne diseases like dysentery and cholera. In Addis Ababa, much of the wastewater from residential areas, commerce, industry and agriculture is discharged untreated into local streams and rivers. So our guests will share the value of citizen science approaches from enhancing community understanding of their environment to resolving data gaps for risk assessment, modelling and better decision making. But before we get on to that, let's hear from our co-host, AJ. AJ, how are you today? And tell us a bit about yourself. Hi, everyone. Uh, thanks, Kim. Uh, my name is Ajay Bhave, and I am the Global Challenges Research Fellow at Newcastle University in the UK. Uh, I'm an environmental scientist uh, who works on climate change risks, impacts, and adaptation uh, across different places in the global south, uh, Asia, Africa, and South America. Uh, and I'm particularly interested in climate services and how we can use scenarios and decision-making approaches to help communities and stakeholders take adaptation decisions under uncertainty. Thanks, AJ. A pleasure to uh, hear from you again. Okay, so this week's guests, let's introduce Lemziket and David, who will be talking about their work with citizen scientists in Addis Ababa. So, Lemziket, let's start with you. Tell us a bit about yourself. Thank you, uh, Kim, uh, for the opportunity to share our work. My name is Alam Sakkar Tamaruheli. I studied my master's and PhD in the Netherlands, where I learned about remote sensing and water resource management. Currently, I am a researcher, a senior researcher at the International Water Management Institute. My research mainly focuses on water resource management, climate change impact, and water risks. I have also a special interest on filling existing data graphs in water resources. Uh, hence, I have been investigating the scope of citizen science to fill hydrological data gaps uh, in Ethiopia in the uh, last few years. Thank you. Thank you very much for sharing that. David, over to you. Tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, yes. Hello, I'm David Werner. As you can maybe guess from my accent, I'm not British, but uh, originally from Switzerland, kind of the German speaking part of the world, but I came to Newcastle via uh, the United States and I am now a professor of environmental systems modeling at Newcastle University, 
where I've been working for uh, almost 16 years now. So in Ethiopia, we work with the Addis Ababa Water and Sewerage Authority and with the International Water Management Institute and citizen scientists to improve awareness of flooding risks and waterborne hazards in the Akaka catchment. Thank you very much. I think that takes us on to um, the next part of this to understand the project a little bit more um, and where your research is focused. So could you elaborate a little bit, please? Yeah, maybe I can give you the context of the Global Water Security and Sustainable Development Hub. So this is a multi-institutional uh, hub that connects partners in five different countries, Ethiopia being one of them, but also we have partners in Malaysia, India, Colombia and the United Kingdom. So that's more than a hundred researchers all working towards water security for a resilient future. I guess everyone knows that water is essential for life, but it can also be hazardous. So if we think about floods that destroy people's homes or the transmission of infectious disease via the consumption of contaminated drinking water, or maybe also via the irrigation of food with water that is polluted with hazardous bacteria. So the work that we're going to be talking about today is in Ethiopia, in the Akaki catchment, home to Addis Ababa, Ethiopia's capital, and about 5 million people. So this catchment is rapidly urbanizing because Addis Ababa is growing, is one of the most rapidly growing cities in Africa actually, and this urbanization and growth of the city magnifies some of the challenges with people lacking access to well-planned housing, safe water and sanitation. Climate change makes these challenges uh, potentially even worse in the sense that, you know, there might be uh, more extreme weather events in the future, such as heavy rainfall, but also lack of rainfall in the dry season. Thanks very much. Um, it's really interesting that you, you kind of say that while water is essential to life, it also has to be managed effectively. Otherwise, it presents a number of different risks. Uh, I would just like to, you to clarify, you use the term catchment area. Can you just tell me a bit about what you mean by that? Yes, sure. So if we talk about a catchment, we talk about an area where a kind of that is being drained by a river. So the river that we are uh, talking about today is the Akaki River. Actually, there's more than one Akaki River. There's the little and big Akaki River uh, that drained this catchment. So we're talking about, you know, from the mountainous areas where the rivers originate all the way to where uh, at the bottom end of the catchment we've got a, a larger river than the, the 
drains in, into the Avash Basin, I think uh, maybe Dr. Hale can explain also a little bit more about the Akaki catchment. Thanks very much. Yes, please, uh, uh, Dr. Hale. So the, the Akaki catchment it is uh, found at the central part of Ethiopia, uh, as Dr. Uh, David stated, it uh, drains a mountainous area, the Intoto Mountains and other mountains. Uh, so it is uh, a tributary of the Awash River. The Awash is uh, one of the most utilized uh, rivers in Ethiopia, and also it's, uh, it's not a transboundary river. Most of Ethiopian rivers are transboundary, but the Awash uh, is not a transboundary. That means it does not drain to in country. Thanks very much. And Alemske, just staying with you, um, I can understand that the de- demography and the populations that the river passes through must be quite varied. Um, you've mentioned urbanization, but I'm sure uh, the river flows through rural areas as well. What are um, some of the uh, challenges and issues you face as a researcher when trying to connect to people and communities in that catchment area? Uh-huh. That's correct. It's a very uh, complex catchment, Akaki. Uh, it hosts the capital city of Ethiopia, that's Addis Ababa. Uh, but the river also has uh, uh, rural parts in the upstream uh, where agriculture is practiced, and also here uh, the reservoirs that are supplying water to the city are hosted. In the downstream also, uh, there are rural population which uh, rely on agriculture and also irrigation in the dry season using the Akaki River. So it's, it's quite complex. The city is expanding at very fast rate uh, and everything is changed, being changed to impervious uh, surface. That means the rainfall uh, is immediately being converted to runoff and it is causing discharges. Uh, so uh, one of the uh, difficulties that we are facing uh, uh, is also uh, uh, the data gaps, you know. Uh, it's not, it also it hosts the capital city. We found out that water quality, groundwater and referral flow data are not available. So it was very difficult for us to investigate the catchment hydrology and come up with solutions that benefit the community. So when we went to the community, we did not have anything at hand. So we started from scratch by uh, consulting them and also identifying the problems that they, that they are facing. So it's, uh, it's also one of the least studied catchments. Also, it is one of the most important catchments of Ethiopia. Thanks very much. And it's really nice to hear that you didn't come with preconceived ideas, rather you engaged the community to identify the problems they had and and to come up with solutions. Um, So that's refreshing. We've heard that across the series as as being very important. So your approach that uh, you yourself and David have been talking about is citizen science. What exactly is citizen science um, in the the perspective that, that you look at it from? So, uh, citizen science has uh, different definitions in literature. So, the definition that we use uh, in our project is that the citizen science it refers to the participation of the general public, that means non-scientists, 
in the generation of new scientific knowledge. So that's the definition we are using. A few years ago, when we started to use citizen science, the main purpose was to fill the data gaps that we faced in conducting water-related research. Uh, so groundwater flood and water quality are not well monitored in Ethiopia, or they are not regularly monitored, uh, whereas the quality of river discharge data is deteriorating in the country. We have shown this in a number of articles that we published, so that the monitoring is attention, but uh, in the short as well as the long term, we found that citizen science can be useful to provide data with larger spatial and temporal coverage, but also fill those data gaps. So uh, our evaluation showed that the citizen scientists are capable of providing data, which is as good as the data collected by professionals. So that's a good news. That means we can use the data for research purposes. However, the scope of our citizen science project evolved over time. Uh, so currently we are now uh, investigating how to engage the citizen scientists to address water challenges they are, that they are facing. Uh, for instance, one of our ongoing research uh, investigates, uh, which is actually in Dakaki, it investigates how citizen science can be used as an entry point for bottom-up approach of water risk management, both flood and water pollution, but currently we are most focusing on the flood component, but I hope in the coming period we will also expand it to the water quality or water pollution parts. So our work shows that citizen science has multiple benefits uh, from enhancing the community understanding of their own environment to resolving data gaps for risk assessment, for water resources modeling, and also uh, it can provide information for better decision making. Thank you so much. It sounds so impressive. And, and already uh, some of these tasks, I think I would struggle to even understand, never mind to have the skills to implement. So, David, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about how citizen scientists capacity is strengthened to be able to do these skills. And then, Alemsket, if you have anything to add off to that, that would be good. Uh, yes, sure. Uh, I should say that I really was introduced to citizen science thanks to the work we did in Ethiopia. So, so I'm learning for, from what they've been doing there. And my kind of expertise is in testing the water, seeing whether there's anything hazardous in the water. Or also, if there's pollution that can lead to ecological impacts in the water such as nutrients. Now the way we normally do this is by taking a water sample and then go to our laboratories and use very complicated instruments for the testing of the water. So if you want to engage citizens and communities in the testing of the water you really need to rethink that completely and find ways of how you can test the water that is easy to do uh, and also, you know, not hazardous, for example. We cannot really use chemicals and reagents in the same way as we would in our well-equipped laboratories. So one thing we came across were these test strips that you can just dip into the water and then there's a color change uh, on the test strip and this helps you interpret 
the water quality and they're being used uh, by owners of aquaria you know to, to see whether the water is good enough for the fish to swim in and, and, and it's something that we've developed in Ethiopia with our colleagues the use of these simple test strips to see whether or not the water quality is indicative of, of good or poor ecological status. Thanks very much. That helps me to understand a, a little bit more. Lemsked, anything to an, add to how you uh, kind of deliver training to citizen scientists? Is it is it quite straightforward? Do you have many challenges? Yeah, it, it's not uh, very complex, but it requires some preparation. Yeah, so uh, it has to be very simple in the way they can understand it. So the equipment that we use, as Dr. David stated, they are simple to use. Uh, so uh, we give them training on the use of the instruments in the field. That is the first thing we do with the trainings. But uh, regularly, we also have series of trainings. Uh, one thing we do is after they collected like one season data. So what we do is we uh, analyze the data with them and we show them how to interpret the data in a very simple manner. So we also train them how to assess the quality of the data they collected. If there are any errors, they need to detect it and also they need to fix those errors before they forget how they took the measurement. So we have series of trainings. It happens at least twice a year so that they some of the trainings are a kind of refresher trainings so that they don't forget the basics of the measurements, but also in some cases, uh, they are expected to communicate the results back to the community. So we think. Thanks very much. Um, and one final question before I hand over to AJ. I'm just trying to understand numbers. Um, how many citizen scientists are involved in the project in um, Ethiopia? Rough numbers is, is fine if you don't have them to hand. So we have various citizen science program, so, um, but I can give you an, uh, one example. Uh, there is one uh, citizen science program on community-based flood early warning system in the Akagi. Uh, so in, in that program, we have uh, nine such citizen scientists who, which are, who are regularly involved uh, in uh, getting flood forecast information from different agencies. Then they use that information and they disseminate it to their community members. So in uh, we have another one, for instance, water quality, there are around five. Uh, then there are also who citizen scientists who are monitoring the river flow. So they are also around 10. So it depends on the type of monitoring or the type of engagement. Thank you. That really uh, helps to understand the, the size and the scale. Over to you, AJ. Right. Um, thank you very much, David and Alimsiget, for all the interesting overview and insights about the kind of work you're doing in uh, in Addis Ababa and the Akaki uh, River Basin. Um, just sort of moving from what Alimsiget mentioned right now, the early warning system in Addis Ababa looking at, fl and looking at floods. 
um, global climate change is increasing extreme rainfall in many places around the world. Um, and this has implications for flooding. So could you explain a bit about uh, what impact river flooding has on uh, river and communities in the uh, Akaki River Basin, and perhaps with some explanation or illustrations about uh, specifically about Addis Ababa. So the rich, the residents of Akaki, especially those who are living in the downstream part, they are annually affected by flooding. Uh, so their uh, lives, human lives, are lost. They also lose their cattle. It's, it's, it's uh, a phenomena that happens every year. Uh, there are uh, the farmers who were forced to shift from rain-fed agriculture to irrigated agriculture because of the flood, because in the dry season, the extent of the flooding has increased and it has uh, it inundates their farmland, so it was not it became difficult for them to cultivate during the rainy season, so they shifted to uh, irrigated agriculture in the dry season. Still, uh, the irrigated agriculture is also affected by uh, flooding. So it's because sometimes the rain comes earlier than expected. Let's say they usually expect the rain to come in June, but sometimes it can. They receive rain in April and May, and it results in loss of irrigated crops. Uh, there are also people who, uh, who have small businesses along the Akaki. Uh, river, so they uh, told us that they uh, they lose their properties. It's a very common for them. Uh, those who are involved in sand mining, they are afraid uh, of the flood because sometimes it takes people who are involved that uh, they, they get drowned in the flood. So there are various uh, uh, damages uh, by flooding. This is what, what I stated is only on the downstream part of the Akaki, but there are other parts of the Akaki which experience different uh, types of flood damage. That is a very interesting sort of dimension that you have provided because there are so many activities that go on in a river uh, and all those activities and a range of other activities that are linked to them are impacted by flooding. Um, David, could you then perhaps sort of uh, also uh, help us understand uh, how can citizen scientists um, sort of measuring rainfall, river flow, and all these other dimensions related to water quality uh, sort of collaborate and come together to to address and, and sort of identify uh, of uh, the various issues and the various dimensions of those issues? Yes. Uh, I think something I would like to explain is that if you have a big flood, on the one hand, of course, that's a risk to to the people and communities that get flooded. But at the same time, in these floodplains, because of all the sediment that's being deposited by the flood, you have very, very fertile soils. So very often, in terms of agriculture, these floodplains, the areas that get regularly flooded, are very good areas to work on if you're a farmer. And if you look at Addis Ababa, 60% of the vegetables that people consume in the city, in this capital city, are produced in the floodplain that's, that's kind of in the downstream of the city. 
So one of the problems then with water quality in, in a setting like this is if you don't treat your wastewater in Addis Ababa, then fecal bacteria and also pathogens get discharged and they end up in the river and in this river water. During the wet season, there's a risk that this polluted hazardous water with the uh, pathogens in it during a flooding event gets into people, people's home. That's a risk. But also during the dry season, when you use the river water for irrigation, that this uh, polluted water then ends up on the crops, on the vegetables that are being sold on the markets. And then that can lead to the transmission of waterborne disease. So that's something that we're very uh, concerned about, but also where we try to engage with the communities and make them aware of these risks uh, of you know, contracting waterborne disease. And I think by engaging the communities in the monitoring of the quality of the river water, we can raise awareness for some of these hazards that are present in the river and also uh, for the problem that comes from a lack of treatment of wastewater or, or a lack of access to sanitation within the city of Addis Ababa. So in addition to us who are kind of the researchers and the communities, we also have partnership with the Addis Ababa Water and Sewerage Authority that's actually responsible for managing both uh, the supply of safe drinking water, but also the provision of wastewater treatment in the city. So it's like this triangle where you've got scientists and you've got the local authorities that are responsible for uh, water and sanitation and then the communities that need access to water and sanitation and that also need to be aware of some of the risks that are associated with river pollution. And I think that's what we want to achieve through the citizen science effort, not just data connect collection, but also this engagement with various stakeholders, including the communities in this huge effort, which is to you know, achieve what we call sustainable development goal six, that everybody has access to safe drinking water and sanitation, and that we can assure water security, which also means having good ecology in our river ecosystems. Thank you, David. That's a very interesting point you make about partnerships. Uh, and maybe Alevsiket, you could sort of elaborate a bit more about how you have gone about building those partnerships and and sort of bringing different communities of practice and different people and organizations and different mandates to work with communities with to and fro information flows. Uh, how 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 have you sort of gone about doing that would be really interesting to hear about that. Uh, thank you. Uh, so it's building partnership uh, is not easy, uh, especially in citizen science, because uh, the short-term benefit is not very visible. Uh, but what we did in uh, 
Akakis, we tried to find a common uh, interest. Uh, one as uh, mentioned was the water pollution issue. That is uh, something interesting for uh, Addis Ababa Water and Sewerage Authority. But also, they, they have uh, reservoirs in the upstream part. So sometimes the reservoirs, when they uh, are full, the, then what they do is they release the water to the downstream area. Uh, so this uh, often causes flooding and also the committee is very concerned about that. So they, Antisaba Water and Sewerage Authority, they want to uh, give early warning information to the community uh, so that the community can be prepared for that. And also the community uh, was, they, they asked us to uh, engage Atisaba and Water and Sewerage Authority in the com community-based flood early warning system. So what we did was we uh, created a platform for both partners to uh, talk about it and they came up with a better communication channel to exchange early warning systems. So in 2021, they checked this communication channel. They are happy with it because it enabled them to pass early warning information about flooding uh, uh, on timely basis. So the, uh, this year, they asked for, the community asked us to link them with the National Meteorological Agency now we are in the process of engaging the National Meteorological Agency in our uh, project. Uh, we, we think they, are, they will be happy with that because they uh, forecast rainfall in, Aki, in Akaki catchment uh, and they want this forecast to reach to the committee. So the committee also wants to use this forecast uh, from the Meteorological Agency. So what's important in partnership is uh, identifying the common interest between the different partners and also building trust. Yes, thank you, Alem Sigar, for highlighting the importance of trust building. Um, I think that, so you have really highlighted how citizen science is an interesting and relevant approach for sort of bringing together vulnerable and impacted communities to become part of the solution along with the uh, other interested parties and organizations. Um, so how can we uh, sort of thinking a bit more about climate change and how uh, climate change impacts will be felt increasingly over the next few years and decades. So how can we engage citizen scientists and the number of people you are already engaging to go beyond data collection? Uh, and especially in the context of sort of changing priorities uh, in terms of climate change impacts, uh, and could this be around interpreting data and knowledge generation? Maybe we can start with Alam Sigeth and then go to David. So, uh, as scientists, we tend to focus on uh, yeah collecting new data, but uh, what's important is also to engage the citizen scientists, uh, not only in data collection but in different phases of the research or the project. Uh, uh, it's not easy because we do not have many examples. Uh, most of the examples on citizen science focus on data collection, how to engage citizen scientists in data collection and how to improve the data quality. Uh, recently, there is a shift towards engaging citizen scientists in 
refining the objectives uh, also uh, in interpreting the data and so on so it's it's very important it's, it's, it's not easy but we have to start somewhere uh, and also we have to do it uh, collaboratively with the citizen scientists what does not work is if we come up with a, our own idea and ask the community to collaborate that becomes difficult but if we engage the community or the citizen scientists in the not only in refining the objectives or meters but also in uh, defining the objective uh, of the citizen science program and also uh, engage them in uh, designing the meters that can work uh, but it's not it's not something easy it's very difficult uh, as i said we do not have many examples but it is something that can be done uh, particularly if we uh, focus on the pressing uh, challenges that the citizens or the community are facing for instance in the akaki catchment uh, flood damage uh, and also water pollution is a very critical problem so if we identify this as the issue and then uh, it's possible to engage the citizen scientists in co-creation of knowledge and also interpreting the, the results. We, we are starting it. We, we do not have anything to share right now, but this is something that we have started and we are uh, investigating. Yeah, maybe if I can... I really liked that we we heard about co-creation of knowledge. I, I think that's the point. It's not about data collection. <laughs> it's about creating knowledge. And, and, and I think, you know, I often say that citizen science could be the antidote to what we call fake news. And, and, and the public being very, very skeptical about experts and, and all the lecturing that, that they get all of the time from uh, people in power and that includes us scientists. So I think if communities can work with these authorities on generating the knowledge and, and this can be by testing the water and uh, you know kind of being able to check yourself what, what actually uh, the situation looks like. I think that can then build trust because this this knowledge that's being created together with the communities and together through an engagement of different stakeholders, the water authorities, the scientists and the communities. There's much greater acceptance of, of the findings because it's not just, oh yeah, you tell us and, and we believe or don't believe. No, if you want to know, uh, you can the science yourself uh, I, I think that's just a very big a, a very uh, promising way of, of addressing issues of lack of trust and for me it's not so much just about collecting data but just about teaching others or trying to educate some of these citizen scientists on how to do the science. So we put a lot of emphasis on how you can assure that the quality of your measurement is good, 
that you're not contaminating your samples. So, so you know, concepts like doing a blank control where you know there's no contamination in the water. And then, yes, if I do the test, I, I do see that there's no contamination, no pollution in that blank sample or preparing samples where you know how much phosphate you have in the sample and then you use your method and yes, your method works. So all of these uh, ways of doing science and educating all, uh, all the stakeholders on how to do proper science, I think that can be an important outcome of this citizen science approach as well. And that should then lead to more trust in some of the findings from the work. Thank you very much, both. That was a great uh, sort of um, body of understanding that you have sort of given to us in terms of thinking about knowledge co-creation and its importance. A lot of food for thought for us uh, and the listeners of this podcast. Uh, at this point, I will hand it over to Kim to take it forward and close the session. Thank you very much. Thanks. Wonderful conversation. So at the end of our um, podcast episode, we'd like to ask you what advice you'd give to others working in a similar field to yourself. So Lemzaged, what advice would you give to other people who want to start to think about using citizen science in their work? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, so one of the challenges that we, have, uh, we faced in the past was uh, sustaining uh, a citizen science project because most of the grants are there short-lived, like one year. Uh, so what we did was we uh, every uh, two years or every year we used to try to compete for small grants that enabled us to sustain our citizen science project for uh, five, six years. Uh, so the, we have to think about how, to, how can we sustain it because uh, it's citizen science needs to uh, it's not a short-term project yes it takes time to show the benefits of citizen science so one thing is thinking about the grants and how to sustain it how to link it with local uh, institutions so that they can uh, sustain it at the end, after the end of the project uh, the other is about the composition of the research team uh, we uh, think that uh, we must include various disciplines, uh, at least for water-related projects. For instance, we need to have, uh, in our team, we need to have experts from institutional background or governance background, gender, biophysical, and other disciplines. And uh, that's very important. Third thing that I can share is, uh, based on our lesson, we need to co-design the citizen science program in collaboration with the community. Uh, so this is all about the process. So if the community passes through each step of the citizen science uh, project, uh, it is highly likely that they will own it and they can sustain it by uh, themselves. So uh, we need to involve them in defining the problem statement and in designing the data collection and in the interpretation, and as we said, in knowledge generation. Thank you. Perfect. So co-designed citizen science programs with citizens. Think sustainability when you're 
moving forward. Quite often grants are short term. So how can we make this approach more sustainable so that your efforts aren't lost? And think about the capacity and breadth of the team. Wonderful advice there. David, anything to add? Yeah, maybe. I mean, what I learned is it's a wonderful opportunity for me to learn from the citizens. So there's, there's lots and lots of knowledge in these communities that, that is also relevant for science. So, 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 for example, some of the early career researchers in the hub, they uh, produced a video and, and uh, luckily for me with a translation of some of the interviews they did with members of the community living along the river into English. So I was able to actually hear their perspectives on river pollution. And what I realized is these people, they know almost everything that, that I uh, figured out with my sophisticated laboratory tests. So there's lots and lots of knowledge in the communities that can inform science. And citizen science is a good, good way of, of uh, gaining access to that knowledge. Perfect. So a real call to be open to learn from citizens. They have a lot of knowledge that can inform science and it's time we listened. On that note, I think it's a perfect ending to this episode. And I would like to say thank you very much to our guests and to our listeners. We look forward to you joining us again next week. Thank you very much. Bye for now. Bye.